So glad to see you. So glad to be with you today, to be back with you today. You're always worried when you travel and you're gone and you come back and say, well, I'm glad to be back. And they say, what? Were you gone? You know, you always worry about that. Mark Terman last week and then next week, Mark and I'll be traveling together down to Houston. So we'll do a video thing next week. We'll see. See how that works. So I'll record it this week and we'll make that happen. Then Janet and I'll be out every Sunday in February and kind of go from there. But so glad to see you on a beautiful, beautiful day like today, isn't it? And uh, thank you to Mike and uh, Michael and Claire again, not only for that, she over there. The whole reason we have a nursery over here is because of Michael and Claire as well. And in fact, they were instrumental in the expansion of the chapel back some time ago as well. And so they are great friends and very generous people. We appreciate you so much, Michael. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we get to be here together, that Janet and I get to be with friends we love so much, to be able to share together in a time of worship and the study of your word. I pray, God, that we'll leave today encouraged by the fact that you want to and you will meet us right where we are and give us a word of hope, a word of transformation, a word of of optimism, a word for this year, a mantra, a calling, a north on the compass that can give our lives even more transcendent meaning, significance, impact, and purpose. So guide our conversation now, I pray, Lord. Add any word, take away any word. You come and speak to us. Teach us from your truth now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the year is fast getting away, but it's still the first month of the year, and so it's still not too late. If you haven't made your New Year's resolutions, if you haven't looked into that yet, you might still consider that. I found some this week that I thought might be of interest to pass along. Lose weight by living on the moon. Why would you do that? I looked it up. You weigh one-sixth as much on the moon as you do on earth. So just move to the moon or just calculate your weight in moon pounds. Don't have to tell anybody. You know, calculate it however you want. Everybody's got a scale. Yours just happens to be a moon scale, right? So that could be a New Year's resolution. Here's one. Pay off my credit cards every month in full with my other credit cards. I don't think that works, but... Nonetheless, here's a third. Stop buttering my donuts. Probably a good resolution. If if you need to make that resolution, you might want to do that. Go back to school to avoid paying my student loans. Seems like maybe people are doing that these days. I'm not, not sure. And here's yet another. Keep it to myself that I have trouble with authority when I'm being interviewed for a job. Probably a good resolution, right, if you're doing all that. Well, for real resolutions this year, I did some research. Here are the top ones, apparently, in 2022. Exercise more, save money, pay off debt, lose weight, spend more time with family, travel more, and reduce stress. Okay? Now, here are the top New Year's resolutions for the previous year. Exercise more, save money, spend less money, lose weight, spend more time with family, travel more, read more. Do those look familiar? Why do we keep making the same resolutions every year? Well, according to the surveys, only 4% of Americans keep the resolutions they make at the start of the year. So we just keep trying and trying and trying and trying, don't we? Today, I'd like us to consider a resolution, if you will, a mantra north on the compass that I believe will give your life a sense of transcendent meaning, significance, and purpose, and nothing else will. God's really been speaking to me about this in recent days. It's a very simple mantra, a very simple resolution. But I really do believe it not only encapsulates all God intends for us, I believe it's transforming for us. 
And I want to encourage you to consider this as a mantra for you every day of this year and every year to come. So let me put it in some biblical context, if I could. We're in John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea, he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So here's what that part of the world looks like. That's Judea down to the south. The yellow part is Samaria in the middle, and then Galilee, or they'll say the Galilee in Israel up on the northern end of all of that. Most of what you see as Samaria is today the West Bank. Most of that is under some level of Palestinian control. Uh, The part that's under complete Jewish control is on the western edge of that along the Mediterranean, and there are places it's only six miles wide. When we go to Israel, we always fly, obviously, into Ben-Gurion outside of Tel Aviv, spend the first night at Tel Aviv, and then get in the bus and make our way up to the north and spend the next two or three days up in the Galilee. So when we go to the Sea of Galilee, go to Capernaum, get up to Caesarea Philippi, all that, and you're driving along, and that's the Mediterranean over there, and that's the West Bank over there, and it's only six miles wide. Israel is a tiny country. Even back in Jesus' day, when you wouldn't have called it the West Bank because it's on the West Bank of Jordan River and Dead Sea, wouldn't have thought of it that way. Still about the size of New Jersey, Israel is. It's a tiny country. It's about 90 miles. The populated parts, north to south, from here to Waco, essentially. Are the pop- now there's Negev down below, 150 miles total, but about 90 of the populated parts. So in Jesus' day, you've got Judea down to the south where Jerusalem is and the temple and all that. You've got the Galilee from where he grew up, up in Nazareth and then over to Capernaum where he based his ministry up there. And now he wants to make his way north. Well, for reasons we'll talk about in just a second, Jewish observant Jews didn't go through Samaria. Can you see that kind of gray dotted line off to the east of Samaria? That's how Jews got from the south to the north. They went around Samaria, even though it wasn't the most direct route to get, for reasons we'll explain in just a second. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes straight through, and as the text says, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, 12 noon. Jacob's well, named because it was apparently dug by Jacob and by his family, which would have been, as you're calculating, nearly 2,000 years earlier, now nearly 4,000 years old, and that's what it looks like, still there. I've drunk from it. We don't go there anymore. Those of you that have been with us to Israel are saying, wait a minute, we didn't see Jacob's well. Well, today it's in a part of the West Bank that we just don't go to as tourists. Uh, There's some safety issues, security issues, that sort of thing. But way back, uh, probably 30 years ago or so, I was part of a group that actually did make our way through and went over. And you can drink from Jacob's well today. The water's still there. The underground springs and all of that. So that well is nearly 4,000 years old, nearly 2,000 years old when Jesus comes through and he sits down on what was a wooden platform around the well at 12 noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, if you and I had been around 20 centuries ago, we would have been shocked beyond words that Jesus did that. It is no stretch to say, Jesus saying that to this woman was one of the most shocking, surprising, 
countercultural, revolutionary things Jesus ever said. That's why we need to know the culture. We need to know the background. That's for three reasons. First of all, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. So let me go back, if I can figure out how to go back on this thing. There we go. So, 722 B.C., the Assyrians, roughly Syrian to the points east, have come and captured the ten northern tribes of Israel. Call them the ten lost tribes of Israel. They repopulated that land primarily with what we would call pagans or Gentiles from Assyria, and the Jews that were left intermarried with them. This is how the Jews told the story anyway. And according to the Jews, that became a mixed breed, kind of a half-breed, the Samaritans they would say. Now, the Jews would disagree with that narrative, but that's what the Jews, or the Samaritans would, but that's what the Jews believed, was that in this part of the world, you had half Gentile, half Jews, which was a direct violation of God's word to the Jews not to marry into Gentiles. There was so much enmity between the two that they made their own temple on the top of Mount Gerizim to um, compete with the temple down in Jerusalem. The Jews got mad at that, and in 138 BC, they came in and destroyed it destroyed the Samaritan temple. This is after the Old Testament was finished and before the New Testament gets written. It's in that intertestamental period that under Hyrcanus, they actually came up and destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. If you read the large historian John 4, and the woman asked Jesus, where should we worship at your temple or our temple? That's the background of all that. A Jewish person wouldn't talk to a Samaritan, public or private, nothing to do with them. That's the enmity the two had between each other. So the Samaritan woman comes to the well, and Jesus speaks to her and says to her, give me a drink. Jews didn't speak to Samaritans. Second, this is weird, not defending it, but in Jesus' culture, Jewish males, and especially Jewish rabbis, didn't talk to women in public. Isn't that crazy? It's how it worked. They just wouldn't. They wouldn't speak to their wife in public. They wouldn't speak to a daughter in public. There's this group called the Bruised and Battered Rabbis. They're walking down the street. They think they might look upon a woman or a Gentile, and they would close their eyes and walk into walls. That's why they were called the Bruised and Battered Rabbis. Isn't that craziness? That's the kind of legalism going on in Jesus' day. That's part of why Jesus reaching out to women was so revolutionary. That's why his choosing Mary Magdalene to be the first witness of the resurrection and the first one to tell about the resurrection was so huge. And Jesus befriending women and women in Luke 9 supporting Jesus' ministry was just so radical. Because in Jesus' day, a woman was the possession of her father until she married and became the possession of her husband. There was never a time she was on her own, not one day. She lived under her father's roof until she married and lived under her husband's roof. She was a possession of both. Second class doesn't even begin to say it. And here's Jesus reaching out to, speaking to this woman in public. Something wasn't done in the culture. Third, if you read the larger story that we don't have time for today, you discover this woman has had five husbands. The man she's living with now is not her husband. That's the reason she comes to the well at noon, the heat of the day when no one else is there. Scholars have calculated she passed probably 80, eight zero springs to get south of Sychar to where Jacob's well was to draw water where she wouldn't be seen by anybody, where she wouldn't be confronted, where she wouldn't be ridiculed because of her personal immorality, all that's going on in her personal life. And Jesus knows that. In fact, later in the story, he points it out to her. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Jesus knows that by divine revelation. And yet he speaks to her anyway. Try to find a good analogy for that. 
I don't know. Imagine Billy Graham comes to town and he's sitting out in the town square and somebody known to be the town prostitute comes up and Billy Graham says, hey, let's sit down and share a Coke. Maybe that kind of gets at it a little bit, but not really because even that wouldn't be the Jewish Samaritan. It wouldn't be the male-female piece of this. So we really don't have an analogy for it. How radical this was, how incredible it is that Jesus did this. Well, the stories in the Bible, not just for her sake, she'd never forget that happened, but for our sake. No matter what brings you to Jacob's well at noon, no matter what's in your life you don't want us to know, no matter where you feel ostracized, no matter where you feel less than, no matter where you feel insignificant or inferior, Jesus comes to you today and meets you at your well. That's why the story's there. So it can be our story. Because what he did for her, he does for us. Well, we'll skip ahead. The story is, it's a long story in John 4. It'd take us a long time to go through it, but we'll skip ahead. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, he's pointing at the water in Jacob's well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. You can choose Jacob's water or Jesus' water. That's your choice. You choose Jacob's water. You choose the water of the world. You choose the water of human culture and human frailty and human failings and prejudice and bigotry and all of that, and you're going to get thirsty again. You choose my water, and eternal life is what comes. And she says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. You have to come here to draw water, speaking for us all, because we all long for that water saw a recent study by Harvard University. It was a longitudinal study over decades trying to determine what makes us happy. At the end of the day, this very long study, hundreds and hundreds of 700 people in the study over this longitudinal study, they came to this conclusion. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. Now you're thinking, I didn't have to go to Harvard to know that, right? Longitudinal study, scientific study, sociological study good relationships. And then the Harvard professor who led the study added this clarification. It's the quality of your close relationships that matters, not the quantity. Scientific, psychological, sociological study. Now, on the other side, as regards your close friendships, same week that came out, a study in the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion came out with this conclusion. Anxiety or a lack of certainty about one's relationship with the divine represents a threat to psychological well-being. Now, they're just saying what St. Augustine said 1,600 years ago when he said to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Pascal, that brilliant mathematician, invented calculus essentially, spoke of an infinite abyss that can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. I've mentioned before Oswald Chambers, my my utmost for his highest. I read from that devotional every day. I've been doing that for decades. Here's my favorite paragraph in the entire devotional. There is only one relationship that matters, and that is your personal relationship to a personal Redeemer and Lord. Let everything else go, but maintain that at all costs, And God will fulfill His purpose through your life. So if you're looking for a mantra this year, if you're looking for north on the compass, looking for a resolution that will give your life significance, purpose, meaning, and joy, 
let me urge you to drink from Jesus' water and not Jacob's water. Let me urge you to seek to know Christ more personally and intimately than you ever have. Now, for some of us, that may start with a salvation experience you haven't had yet. If you haven't asked Jesus to forgive your mistakes and be your Lord, let me urge you to do that today. Just get alone with Jesus. Say, Lord, I ask you to forgive me for my sins and failures. I ask you to come into my life and be the Lord of my life. It's that simple. Then tell a Christian what you've done so they can help you grow in your faith. You don't have to do that to become a Christian, but that's how you grow as a Christian. If you know you've done that, let me urge you to come back to the well at the start of every day, to come to Jesus' water every day, to speak less metaphorically, meet him in his word, read the word, pray, worship. Ephesians 5.18, being filled with the Spirit, invite the Holy Spirit to fill you, to control you, to empower you, to lead you, to use you. Ask him to show you anything you need to confess and confess all that comes to your thoughts. And every single day, drink from the well that is Jesus' water, every single day. Meet him, know Christ more personally and intimately. Make that your goal this year, to know Jesus, not just about him, not just religion, not just chapel, to know Jesus. Christianity is not a great religion. It's a great relationship. It's about a personal relationship with a personal Redeemer and Lord, like Oswald says. Start every day there. Drink from that water. But that's not all there is to the story. After the woman meets Jesus and has this incredible encounter with him, watch what she does. She left her water jar. She went away into town. The very people she was avoiding, those 80 springs she walked by, getting out there at the heat of the day at 12 noon so as not to run into anybody. Now she goes away into town and says to the people, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the Messiah? As a result, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. They asked Jesus to stay with them. And remember, Jews hating Samaritans and vice versa. He stayed there two more days. Then many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. If you want a life of meaning, significance, and transcendence, if you want to live a life God can bless, as Janet told our boys growing up, then what you really want to do is know Christ and make Him known. Know Christ and make Him known. Have to breathe out to breathe in. Have to give to receive, right? Classic example of that, you hear it all the time. Sea of Galilee, beautiful body of water. We saw it on the map earlier up there the northern part. Water flows into the Sea of Galilee from four headwaters. One of them at Caesarea Philippi at the gates of hell where it would go up and then three others. Flows into the Sea of Galilee. Then it flows out of the Sea of Galilee in the Jordan River. Makes its way down to the Dead Sea. But it doesn't flow out of the Dead Sea. No rivers lead out of the Dead Sea. It evaporates, leaving so many minerals behind. Nothing can grow in the Dead Sea. It's why it's called the Dead Sea. So many minerals there. Such a high metallic content. Jordanian patrol boats, Dead Seas on the border between Israel and Jordan, have to change their propellers every six months because the Dead Sea is so filled with minerals. It is ten times saltier than seawater, the Dead Sea. Water flows in to the Jordan and out of the Jordan. Water flows into the Dead Sea but never flows out. It's the Dead Sea. Give to receive. Breathe out to breathe in. Know Christ 
and make him known. God's trusted you with influence, family, friends, people who need to know what you know, people who need to experience what you've experienced. Pay forward the grace you've received. Every single day, say to the Lord, Lord, how can I know you and make you known today? Make that your prayer. Lord, how can I know you and make you known today? If you'll pray that, he'll answer it. You'll hear yourself say words you didn't plan to say. You'll sense the Lord opening doors to conversations you hadn't expected to have. Lord will prompt you to send a text or an email or make a call you hadn't planned to make. The Lord always goes ahead of us to the people he's preparing us to reach. He plows the ground before we scatter the seed. He prepares the person before we talk to him, if we'll follow him. If we'll say to him, Lord, help me know you and make you known. And then the funny thing is, the more we make him known, the more we know him. And the more we know him, the more we want to make him known. And it feeds in a way that's absolutely transformative. If you love someone, you want to tell the story, right? Somebody asked me about my grandkids. Just go ahead. Just go ahead and do that. We've only got three minutes left, but go ahead. Ask me about my grandkids, right? I've mentioned I have grandkids. Have I mentioned that to you before? Have I told you the grandchildren are God's reward for not killing your children? Have I told you that? No. The more you love someone, the more you want others to love them, right? Just how it works. You see a great movie, you tell people. You read a great book, you tell people. You forward a tweet. You like something on Facebook. You share what you've received. If it matters to you, you want to share it with somebody else. The more you know him, the more you want to make him known, and the more you want to make him known, the more you know him. And that simple mantra will not only change our lives, it'll change our world. I'll close with this example. I'd like you to meet a Southern Baptist pastor in Chicago named Corey Brooks. Reverend Brooks is in the inner city of Chicago. You may have noticed on the news they're struggling in the inner city of Chicago these days with street violence, with gang warfare, with horrific poverty, enormous issues and challenges. Reverend Brooks wants to build a community center to do what government agencies can't do there. He wants to call attention to what's going on in Chicago, wants to meet with people to talk about it, government leaders, civic leaders, anyone that will talk to him. So on November the 30th, Reverend Brooks set up a tent on the top of a roof of a building overlooking his church. That's his church behind him there. And he's living there for 100 days in a Chicago winter. He is living on the top, the rooftop of a building for 100 days in a tent. And you can imagine the story is making global news. I picked up from an Associated Press article about it. The local Fox affiliate carries articles nearly every day covering what he's doing. People have come from as far away as Florida to New York to meet with him. He's met with civic leaders, officials, people that want to help him start the community center he's trying to build there. All he really wants to do is know Christ and make him known. He has said about his project, we believe the government cannot change hearts. They can legislate laws, but it is faith in Christ that changes hearts. And then he adds this, my greatest desire is to redeem this community from poverty-entrenched hopelessness to entrepreneurial-infused hope, hope undergirded by God's unconditional love and acceptance. 
Now, I'm not here to say that if you will say to God, I want to know you and make you known, he's going to ask you to spend 100 days in a Chicago winter on the top of a building. But whatever he asks you to do, you'll be glad you did it. Whatever an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God asks you to do, to know him and make him known, you'll be glad you did it, and we'll be glad you did it. So one more time, would you make this your prayer every day? It's not a rhetorical question. Would you, would you make this your prayer every day? Lord, help me know Christ and make him known. Six words, know Christ and make him known. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, I'm saying yes to you. I'm saying to you, Father, that my prayer every day, every morning, is help me to know Christ and make him known today. Father, help me to pray that all through the day. Help me to pray that before conversations, before meetings, before I write something, before I say something, before I do something. Help me to say, Lord, in this moment, help you to know you and make you known. In this email, in this article, in this interview, whatever I'm doing, Lord, help me to make that my prayer. Bring this back to my mind. Remind me of this all through this day and every day. Make this, Father, the purpose of my life, to know Christ and make him known. And then, Lord, I pray that that would be true for each of us here today. So take this moment, just you and God. Let me invite you to say yes to God right now. Would you, in your own heart, say to God, Lord, help me know Christ and make him known. Would you say that to God? Lord, help me know Christ and make him known. Would you make that your prayer to him? Would you make it your commitment to do that every day, all through the day, to his glory? Father, I thank you for all the ways you'll answer this prayer and change our lives and change our world this year. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I'll have a great day on a beautiful day. See you next week.